So let's read through this chapter together. It's just three paragraphs of God's covenant. The distance between God and the creature is so great that although reasonable creatures do owe obedience to Him as their Creator, yet they could never have attained the reward of life but by some voluntary condescension on God's part, which He hath been pleased to express by way of covenant. Paragraph 2. Moreover, man having brought himself under the curse of the law by his fall, it pleased the Lord to make a covenant of grace, wherein He freely offereth unto sinners life and salvation by Jesus Christ, requiring of them faith in Him that they may be saved, and promising to give unto all those that are, are, that are ordained unto eternal life His Holy Spirit, to make them willing and able to believe. Paragraph 3. This covenant is revealed in the gospel. First of all, to Adam in the promise of salvation by the seed of the woman, and afterwards by farther steps until the full discovery thereof was completed in the New Testament. And it is founded in that eternal covenant transaction that was between the Father and the Son about the redemption of the elect. And it is alone by the grace of this covenant that all the posterity of fallen Adam that ever were saved did obtain life and blessed immortality, man being now utterly incapable of acceptance with God upon those terms in which Adam stood in his state of innocency." Now, the, the doctrine of the covenant, or we, we could say covenant theology, is central to our confession of faith. And you'll probably remember that I said that many times as we were going through these paragraphs. The confession is, you could say, built around this concept of God's covenant with man. Why would that be? Well, it's because... All of God's dealings with man, especially salvifically, have been by way of covenant. Now I'm going to make a couple, three fairly bold statements. Hopefully this will at least stir up your interest if, you're not, if you've not uh, heretofore found yourself uh, interested in covenant theology. To understand the Bible, you need to have some concept of covenant theology. Now, that doesn't mean you can't understand anything about the Bible or that the, the, the newest and youngest or, most, uh, or the least taught student of Scripture can't understand anything at all. But if you're going to advance and grow in your understanding of the Scriptures, you need to have some concept of covenant theology. To understand the gospel, you need to have some concept of covenant theology. Again... Not that someone has to go through a course on covenant theology or finish uh, Pink's Divine Covenants before they can say, now I understand the gospel. But if you're going to grow in your comprehension of the fullness of the gospel, you're going to have to learn covenant theology. Third statement. If you want to understand the world that we live in right now and how to conduct yourself in it, you need to understand covenant Theology. Again, what I'm not saying you have to have a, a full comprehension of covenant theology before you go to work tomorrow. But 
to, to really make sense of the way things are, the way that we live, how we conduct ourselves during the time between Christ's two advents, you need to understand something of covenant theology. And I'll, I'll go back and say, within these, these three statements, if you are understanding things about the Bible, if you're understanding things about the gospel, if you're learning how to make sense of the world in which we live and how to live in it, you probably already have some concept of covenant theology in your mind that you're working with, even if it's just sort of been uh, bits and pieces imbibed from, from other places. Apart from a proper biblical and, I would argue, Baptist view of covenant theology, we open ourselves up to a multitude of errors and, for many, even making our way into heresies if we don't understand covenant theology. At the same time, the waters of covenant theology have been so muddied over the centuries that for many people that might be new to the subject, you come to it and it just seems like it's so big, so confusing, so many elaborate lines and, and points here and there and over there and back here. It seems like this is something you could never get your mind wrapped around. It just seems too confusing. And there are, even in this room, varying levels of comprehension from, from the person who says, I couldn't tell you the first thing about it, all the way to the person who says, I could explain every detail of it. Within the room, I understand there are varying levels of understanding. And a lot of times when we begin to, we begin to talk about covenant theology, we, it's just a daunting thing because we think that it's, it's really detailed, technical, and we're just not ready to understand it. Well, uh, hopefully, at least by the end of this evening, you'll be a, a little more clear than you were when you got here. But I will say this. I, I thought of this just on the way here. And uh, we were driving down the road, and I said, Ezra, hold the wheel for a second. So he held the wheel, and I was uh, looking up. I'm just kidding. I was watching the road. <laughs> My phone was up here. But I have an app that has um, several different historic creeds and confessions, catechisms, all that kind of stuff in one app. So I pulled it up, and I looked up the Westminster Confession of Faith and how many paragraphs they have on covenant theology. Six. Our, our, cha our, our chapter on covenant theology, God's covenant, three. Half. Now, what does that seem to imply? What I gleaned from that was, hopefully an encouraging thing, it's actually more simple than we often think it is. And I'll say this, even though we are going to look at our confessional arrangement of it, it becomes even more simple if you will just pay attention to the Bible's words about the issue. Listen to what the Scriptures Say Now, again, we don't have time to go through the, the entire Bible with regard to covenant theology. This will just be really an introduction. But hopefully that would be an encouragement. It's actually very simple, especially if you pay attention to the title of the chapter here, of God's covenant, period, not plural. It's, it's setting forth for us the, the general idea of a singular covenant which is preeminent in the Scriptures. We're going to see specifically the covenant that deals with salvation. It's simple. It's simple. So, I'm going to open this chapter up under three headings. Uh, number one, the reason for God's covenant. That'll be paragraphs one and two. Number two, the revelation of God's covenant. That'll be paragraph three. And then a third point I want to address is the ratification of God's covenant, which is sort of uh, an, an additional point that I think is helpful to make, even though it's, it is kind of alluded to in here. So, so the reason 
the revelation and the ratification of God's covenant. So number one, the reason for God's covenant. There are a lot of people, and you'll run into people like this, who will say covenant theology is just a system that man has created and has laid upon the Scriptures, and now they have to try to work to cram the Bible into this system. It's, it's not biblical at all. You've, you've made this up. Well, our confession begins by showing us that the doctrine of covenant or God's covenant is not only explicitly biblical, but it's actually necessitated by the nature of God and the nature of man. Notice the language of paragraph 1. The distance between God and the creature is so great. So we, we begin by noting the distance between God and the creature. The implication is, because of who God is and because of who we are, therefore covenant. Now we're going to get to that, but God's nature is not going to change and our distance from Him is not going to change. These are, these are set in stone realities and therefore it's from these realities that covenant theology flows. The nature of God, the nature of man. God is holy. God is not like us. His ways are not like our ways. His thoughts are not like our thoughts. We say, I would do it that way. God says, I wouldn't do it that way. We think one way. God says, I don't think that way. He's not like us in the least. God is creator. He's sustainer. He's giver. He is immutable. He doesn't change. He's immovable. He's not obliged or obligated to us in any way, shape, or form. He's not indebted to any creature whatsoever. That's God. Okay? What are we? we? We are everything on the other end of the spectrum from that. We are creatures. We receive our being from God. God's being is of God. We receive our being from God. Man, we are sustained by God. We receive everything from God and we give nothing to God. God is immutable. We are mutable and movable. God is not obliged to us in any way. We are utterly obliged to God in every way. The, this distance is so great, it says, that although reasonable creatures do owe obedience to Him as their Creator, yet they could never have attained the reward of life. We do owe God obedience as our Creator. Period. And our obedience does not earn us anything from God. God doesn't see our obedience and then say, well, now that you've obeyed, I guess I'll have to pay up. It's not that, not that way. We, we owe it to Him. Turn with me to Luke chapter 17, verse 10. I think this is probably the, the simplest text that draws out this particular point. Luke 17, I'll just begin reading in verse 7 at the beginning of the, of the teaching here of our Lord. He says, Will any of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he's coming from the field, Come at once and recline at table. In other words, you've been working hard. Come on in and take a break. Does anybody do that? Th their response is, uh, No. He says, 
Will he not rather say to him, Prepare supper for me, and dress properly, and serve me while I eat and drink? And afterward you will eat and drink. In other words, hey, it's good that you're in the house from all that work. we got more work for you to do. Here are your tasks. Because that's what a servant does. Verse 9, does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? Now, in our culture, we would say, of course, you have to say thank you. It, it, it's only polite. But in, in those days, they understood that there's no thanks obligated here. You are doing your job. So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say... We are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. Two things really from this passage we could see. The first one, sort of unrelated here, is duty is not sinful. Um, doing what you're supposed to do, it, it, if somebody says, well, I don't want to do it just because I'm supposed to. Well, there ought to be more than that, but that should be enough, especially from God. If it, God's told you to do it, it is enough. Just do it. But the second thing here is all duty is from the direction of us to God. We owe Him. He owes us nothing. Another passage is Job 35, 7, which says, If you are righteous, what do you give to Him? Or what does He receive from your hand? God is Creator. We are creatures. You are obliged to worship Him, obey Him, serve Him. And all, for all of your worship, for all of your obedience, for all of your service, at the end of your life, all you have done is what was expected of you, what was owed to God from you because you are His creature and He is your Creator. You've earned nothing. You don't get a paycheck at the end of that. You've just done what you were supposed to do. And that, that goes for, this is, this is an, an important truth, that goes for Christians and non-Christians alike. Obligation to God doesn't start because someone is regenerated or because someone is a covenant child, or whatever. And, and that's a, a, a point of contention between uh, the, the Paedo-Baptists and, and us. They would say, why do, you, why, why do you teach your children to pray? Why do you teach them to sing? Why do you teach them? Because they're creatures. They owe worship. That's why we do it. Everyone owes that to God, and God is not obliged to, uh, to pay men back for that. We could never have attained the reward of life... We could never have put God in our debt to owe us eternal life. That, that can't happen. It would not happen except, and our confession says, but by some voluntary condescension on God's part. Even though our obedience is owed to God, our obedience deserves no reward. But, the flip side of that is, if God determines of Himself that He will condescend to enter into an agreement with us and offer us a reward based on our obedience. He's free to do that. We are not free to go to Him and say, hey, let's make a deal. But He can do that for us. And our confession then goes on to say, which He hath been pleased to express by way of covenant. In other words, this He has done. We can't do it. We can't earn anything from God. But if God condescends, He can do that, which He has done by way of covenant. He is expressed in the form of a covenantal agreement. We, we don't approach God and offer Him terms of agreement. We don't have any ground to do anything like that. We can't negotiate with Him. We've got no stock in, in anything that we can begin to barter with God. We cannot come to Him and present Him terms of peace or advancement because we're just creatures. He has to come to us and that's what He's done. He's done it in the form of 
covenant. Now here's a definition of covenant. Definitions of covenant are everywhere. I'm, I'm trying to give a, a fairly simple one. This is an agreement in, in this context, an agreement established by God where we can come into fellowship with God based on the terms and conditions that He stipulates. That's how I would put it in, in, for our context. An agreement established by God where we can come into fellowship with Him based on the terms and conditions that He stipulates. And we see this, you can turn to Genesis chapter 2. We, we see this in what is, for most of us, probably the second page of our Bibles. And again, as I said, if you've read much of the Bible at all, you, you probably already have a little bit of covenant theology in your mind. You just, maybe you wouldn't put it under that title. Genesis 2, 16 and 17, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now, in these verses, we only have the negative side of what we typically refer to as the covenant of works. But we can deduce from it the positive side. There is a, a condition that's set forth here negatively. If you eat of that tree, you'll die. Now, if you think about it, there's nothing inherently sinful about eating from this tree. There has to be... God is bringing something to the table beyond what was there simply by nature. Again, here, just the negative side. If you eat, you'll die. Well, what's the implication? Well, if you don't eat from that tree, you'll live. That's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now... We don't have time to go into all of this, but we also know there was the tree of life, which shows that Adam, had he obeyed this command, would not have simply continued in a regular existence, but there was actually opportunity for him to obtain an advancement from where he was to a, a higher state. Now, God didn't owe that to Adam. That was just God condescending to make this Agreement. Adam would not have intrinsically earned this higher position. Well, hey, I obeyed. Well, so what? You obeyed. You've only done your duty. God is offering these terms. Nothing about eating from this tree or not eating from this tree earns eternal reward or eternal damnation, except those are the stipulations God gave. He put forward this agreement. Adam's attainment of eternal life by obedience was only because God came to him and said, here are the terms. God condescended and made this agreement with Adam. Now, of course we know that Adam failed and that brings us to paragraph 2. Moreover, man, having brought himself under the curse of the law by his fall, When Adam sinned, that brought all men under the curse of the law, or the curse of a broken covenant. Genesis or Galatians 3.10 says, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. Not will be. You, you will be under a curse if you try to go that route. No, you are under a curse. Adam's covenant offered life in exchange for obedient works. Or I could say God's covenant with Adam. Adam broke that covenant, and we all in him broke that covenant. The curse came upon Adam. The curse has been passed down to all of us. So we are all born under the curse of a broken covenant of works. We come out of the womb, 
Covenant breakers, not covenant keepers. That's the doctrine of original sin. From, from conception, covenant breakers. That's the doctrine. So, if you want to go back to a, a, a covenant of works mentality like God had with Adam and try to obey your way to eternal life, you're just going to find a curse waiting for you. That's all there is. Because in Adam, you've already failed. 1 Corinthians 15, 22. In Adam, all die. That's, that's the condition. Adam representing us before God. But then we turn the, the attention back to God. We return to Him. Nature of God, nature of man, back and forth. We look at man, we look at God, we look at man, we look at God. Now we're looking at God. It is God who must condescend to present us with any covenantal arrangement with Him. He has to come. That's what He did with Adam. After the fall, He comes, or He did it with Adam before the fall, and then after the fall, He does it again in and through the second Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice our confession continues. Moreover, man having brought himself under the curse of the law by his fall, it pleased the Lord to make a covenant of grace wherein he freely offereth unto sinners life and salvation by Jesus Christ. Romans 8.3 describes God's action here. God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh. He condemned that which was uh, the, 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 the lawlessness in us, the breaking of the law. And then salvation in light of that is freely offered. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. It's freely offered to anyone who will believe. And it's offered in Christ, not in Adam, not it by works, but in Christ by grace. And that's why it's referred to here as, and this is not a biblical phrase, it's something that, that we have come up with to describe this, this thing. It's called a covenant of grace as opposed to a covenant of works. Now, it's becoming more and more popular in our day to take the view that says this. The fact that God came to Adam in the very beginning, and made a covenant with him, well, that was condescension on God's part. We say, yes, amen. That was very gracious of God to do that. Yes, amen. Therefore, that also was the covenant of grace. No, that's, that's different. There's a difference between gracious condescension in God and the covenant, uh, the, the substance of which is grace versus works and the stipulations that are presented to us. The stipulations of the covenant of works was do this and live. We call it the covenant of grace, not because it's so gracious of God to do it, but because the substance of the covenant as it pertains to the, the stipulations and the working out of it is grace. It's God acting in the place of and for men, opposed to works. In the biblical language, this covenant is called the new covenant, which we'll see in just a minute. It pleased God after the fall to make a new covenant, a covenant of grace, not works, in and through Jesus Christ. Now, what are the stipulations of this covenant? It's not works. That was Adam. What are the stipulations of this covenant? We continue reading. Requiring of them faith in Him that they may be saved and promising to give unto all those that are ordained unto eternal life his Holy Spirit, to make them willing and able to believe. 
So rather than works, this covenant requires faith. Now, some people would say, well, faith is a work. No, faith is actually the opposite of works. Works is looking to what you do. Faith is looking utterly outward, not me, God. It's looking to Him, looking to God in Christ rather than your works. And here we see that God promises to give all of the elect His Holy Spirit to make them willing and able to believe. What's that? That's faith. Faith is required as the condition on our side of the covenant of grace. And faith is promised from God as His, one of His uh, blessings of the covenant of grace. That's what makes it the covenant of grace. It's the only covenant that secures its own conditions on our side and on God's side in the person and work of Jesus Christ. The chief gift of the covenant of grace is the Holy Spirit or the Spirit of grace. The Holy Spirit gives new life through regeneration and also grants to us every saving benefit of the covenant of grace that is through primarily or preeminently union with Christ. We get the Holy Spirit, we're joined to Christ, therefore we have come into the sphere or the realm of the covenant of grace. Two texts. The first we, we've looked at many times, Ezekiel 36, 26, and 27, that refers to uh, this promised gift of the Spirit. God says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. And then our response is described in Psalm 110, verse 3. Your people will offer themselves freely in the day of your power. God's power comes. His people then respond and offer themselves to Him freely through the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's what happens. God requires faith, and then He actually gives that very faith that He requires. So it's here in these first two paragraphs that we see the reason for the covenant of grace. God and man are too far apart. There's, there's no negotiations. We can't negotiate eternal life with God. Man, in addition to that, man has sinned and found himself not only unable to negotiate, but actually under the curse of a broken covenant. And so God, in love, condescends. He presents the terms of a covenant of grace. And He invites men to enter into that covenant with them, which will secure for them eternal life. And both sides of this covenant of grace, God's side and man's side, are secured and promised through the work of Jesus Christ. That's the first point. The reason for the covenant of grace. Alright, number two, the revelation of God's covenant in paragraph three. Remember, the topic is covenant singular. The covenant of grace, or we might call it the new covenant. And the question now is, when and how has God revealed this covenant to men? How has it been made known to men that God is offering this covenant of grace in Christ? Now, as we read this paragraph, the language of paragraph 3 of this chapter is extremely, extremely important. Every word of it is very important. Look at paragraph 3. This covenant, which covenant? Covenant of grace. This covenant is revealed in the gospel. Semicolon. Which lets us know that that, that statement can stand on its own. 
It's revealed in the gospel. In other words, the gospel of Jesus Christ is the revelation of the covenant of grace. Or the revelation of the covenant of grace is the gospel. It is the good news. A a covenant comes in the form of, of a declaration. Here are the terms. Here are the promises. Here are the stipulations. You declare that. When this covenant is declared, it is the good news of the Bible. It is the gospel. Think of it this way. We often say the good news is good because the bad news is bad. How can God and sinful man have any fellowship at all? How can this happen? How can a sinner avoid the torments of hell for their sins knowing that from conception they are covenant breakers? Well, it can't be that they just came out of the womb and said, I'm going to make a deal with you, God. We don't have that option. We can't do that. Well, it must be that God has condescended to make a covenant with men. God has come down. And again, the gospel message, and again, you don't, have to, you don't have to say it this way. I would like to explain to you the covenant of grace, the revelation of the covenant. No, the gospel message is the explanation. When you preach the gospel, you are explaining the terms, the stipulations of this covenant of grace, this arrangement that God has put before men. Nature of God, nature of man, what has God done? God has come down. God is unimaginably pure and righteous. You and I are sinful. But rather than immediately punish us upon the moment of conception, God instead put forth His Son, Jesus Christ, to live and to die, suffering the penalty of those sins that we had acquired by our very nature, as sons and daughters of Adam, as well as the sins that we commit in our lives. God didn't kill us, but He puts forth His Son. He dies for our sins. God raised up His Son to to display that He is satisfied in the work. It, It has been sufficiently received by God. It has secured all of the benefits of the covenant for us. And then here are the terms of the covenant. God says this, Put your faith in this one, and you will be saved. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Those are, that's the terms of the covenant. That's how the covenant is revealed through the gospel. Now, how and when did God begin to reveal this covenant to men? Well, it says the covenant is revealed in the gospel. First of all to Adam in the promise of salvation by the seed of the woman. The first revelation of the covenant of grace, or or we could say, again, the first preaching of the gospel was to Adam in Genesis 3.15. God says, technically, to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. There's a promise. The seed of the woman will come who will destroy the works of the devil. And Adam's faith, when he overheard that, his faith was to immediately be placed in that one who was to come, the coming seed of the woman. Now notice here that what we're talking about, the first gospel, the first revelation of the covenant, it is a promise of a future event. Everything in the language. Something's going to happen one of these days. A future event. In other words, at this point, God's side of the covenant is not yet accomplished in time. It's a promise of something that will happen. Now, Adam wasn't to say, well, I'm going to have to see a little more than that. No, he believed. It it was faith. 
faith was to be in the coming seed of the woman. So it's first of all revealed to Adam in the promise of salvation by the seed of the woman. And afterwards, by farther steps, that is, it's, it's progressively revealed, more and more is made known over time, until the full discovery thereof was completed in the New Testament. Discovery, the old writers, when they say discovery, what they mean is uncovering. To discover is to, to uncover. The full uncovering, the full revelation of it was completed in the New Testament. Also, when you read old documents like this, when they say Old Testament or New Testament, a lot of times they're not talking about the, you know, the last 27 books of your Bible. They're, they're using testament as synonymous with New Covenant. The New Covenant. So it, it's, it is revealed in the promise of salvation to Adam by the seed of the woman. And then it's revealed afterwards by further steps more and more until the full uncovering of it is completed in what the Bible calls the New Covenant. That's biblical language. When you go to Hebrews, it doesn't say the covenant of grace. It says the New Covenant. And elsewhere, Jeremiah 31. That's this... The revelation, and we continue reading, uh, its basis, it's founded in that eternal covenant transaction that was between the Father and the Son about the redemption of the elect. Now this is a reference to the covenant, what we call the covenant of redemption, which is not the topic here, but, but it is the, the ground or the bedrock of all of God's dealings with men in Christ in time. The covenant of redemption is an arrangement between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in eternity. That what this is saying is the covenant of grace, as it's revealed in time, finds its basis in what had already been pre-arranged between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in eternity, before time began. That's the basis for God's promise. That's why when God said, the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent, Adam didn't say, I'm going to need more proof. No, God has said it. Period. And it's founded upon the actions of the eternal, the Holy Trinity. I continue it in our confession. And it alone, or it is alone by the grace of this covenant, the covenant of grace, that all the posterity of fallen Adam that ever were saved did obtain life and blessed immortality, man being now utterly incapable of acceptance with God upon those terms on which Adam stood in his state of innocency. In other words, this covenant of grace is the only covenant that offers salvation to men. Anyone who has ever been saved from Adam onward is saved by the grace of the covenant of grace. Any believer at any point in history, at any place in the world, if they are a Christian, they were, they are, or they will be a member of the covenant of grace. How do we know that's true? Well, Peter says in Acts 4.12, There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved or by which we must be saved. Only Christ. And there's only one covenant that has been given in Christ. There's only one person in the whole Bible that is actually called a covenant. And it's Christ. There's only salvation in one. Christ Himself said in John 8, The father Abraham rejoiced, or your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. In other words, Abraham way back then was looking forward to the promised Messiah, Jesus Christ, in faith. All of the elect 
have been recipients of the same covenant blessings of the same covenant in the same way. There's only ever been one way of salvation, and that is in Christ Jesus and the covenant of grace offered in Him. So when and how was this covenant revealed? It was revealed to Adam in Genesis 3.15 by the promise of the Messiah. It was progressively revealed as to its details throughout history. It was fully and completely uh, revealed or discovered when Christ came and sealed it with His blood. And it's called in the New Testament the New Covenant. This, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Now we see. That, that's the picture. Now, now we see how this covenant works. His blood. Okay, now let's go to number three because that's a transition to this point. The ratification of God's covenant. The ratification. Ratification is defined this way. The action of signing or giving formal consent to a treaty, contract, or agreement, making it officially valid. To ratify a covenant is to officially, formally sanction the covenant by whatever act is required or stipulated in that particular covenant, whatever it might be. In human covenants, this is often done by the signing of the contract. Now, you say you're going to buy a house. They've got that big stack of papers. Okay, The day, let's say the morning before you arrive, they've got all those papers printed out and stacked and ready for you to sign here, sign here, sign here, sign here, sign here. Okay, It's all printed out. It's ready. The, 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 the uh, appointment's made. Okay, Until you sign those papers, it's not ratified. It's not officially sanctioned as an agreement. That's what it means to ratify. So the question is, when was the covenant of grace officially, formally sanctioned? Or we could phrase it this way. By what act was the covenant of grace officially, formally sanctioned or ratified? Turn to Hebrews chapter 9 with me. Hebrews 9, verses 15 to 18. Therefore He, that is Christ, is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. They had a promise. It's an inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. What's the implication? Well, the second one has to be inaugurated with blood. Now, in this passage, the words will, what we might say our last will and testament, Testament, same as covenant, our last will and covenant, last will and testament. Here are the stipulations. When I die, these people get this. In this passage, there's a promised eternal inheritance. Something is going to be bestowed. So we put all this together. When will this will, when will this covenant be formally established? When does it come into formal effect? Well, at death, the testator must die. 
if Christ is the testator of the new covenant, when is the new covenant or the covenant of grace officially ratified? Well, the answer would be it is ratified at Christ's death in the shedding of His blood. The covenant of grace was sealed or ratified or officially sanctioned when His blood was poured out and His life ended and He died. Now that leads us to this question because what I've been saying is the covenant of grace is the covenant by which all have been saved from Adam onward. And yet now we're saying, well, the covenant wasn't even ratified until Christ shed His blood. So how can the grace of the covenant be administered to people from Adam onward before the death of Christ if the covenant wasn't officially ratified? We go back to the beginning of paragraph 3. Because it was revealed to Adam in the promise of salvation by the seed of the woman. In other words, the stipulation on man's part, this is important, the stipulation on man's part to enter into this covenant is what? Faith. 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 We often wonder, why faith? Why faith? Why faith? Well, there are many reasons, but I think this is helpful here. Faith, if that's the stipulation, faith is, is a grace that is logically conducive to covenantal dealings in all times and in all places. In other words, to act upon faith, to exercise faith, I don't have to be there when it happens. It hasn't happened yet. It's okay. The stipulation is not see it. The stipulation is faith. Those who lived before Christ, they exercised faith that God would do what He said. We who live after Christ exercise faith that God did what He said He would do. It's faith all around. You can see faith spanning the time. All who been, have been believers, they come in by faith and faith works well that way so that the grace that comes from the covenant can be mediated to us, not because we saw it, not because the covenant was officially sanctioned or ratified yet, but that we were believing the promise. It was revealed in the promise of salvation by, his, by the seed of the woman. And Adam received the grace of the covenant because he believed what God has said. The elect were saved by the grace of the covenant of grace before the ratification of the covenant of grace because they exercised faith in the promise of the Messiah who would ratify the covenant of grace. Right? If they saw it happen before their very eyes, what, what does that require? What, what faith does that... They, they just see it. But here they have to believe something that God has said. And they believed He would. God will ratify His covenant. And therefore they received that grace. Romans 3, 23-25 says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift, that's every believer, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, the only Savior, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. God had passed over former sins. Whose sins had He passed over? Not those in hell. They're being tormented. It's the saints. The saints who had lived and had sinned and they died and they were immediately in the presence of the Lord. God had passed over them. He had not executed the, the judgment for those sins yet. He had allowed men like Abraham and David and Daniel to enter into His grace even though there, there's no atonement that has been made. No, no blood has been spilled yet. 
And so the question is, how can God do this and still be just? And the answer is, because He already promised to send His Son to be the propitiation for their sins. And God's promise, again, is founded on the covenant of redemption. God's promise is as good as His doing. Hebrews 6.17, when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of His purpose, He guaranteed it with an oath. What else do you need? God made an oath. God made an oath. It's done. It, it can't be any other than what He has said. Well, it, well it, yeah, but it hasn't happened yet. Tell that to God. In his eyes, in his mind, in his dealings, it's as good as done. He swore it by an oath. God made a promise to Adam and revealed it in further steps down through the centuries. God is not able to lie. God is not able to fail. And therefore, God's promise is equal to God's action. Therefore, you think about this. Faith in the substance of the promise is the same as faith in the thing promised. With God, they are the same in, in the outworking of them. So the covenant of grace was not formally ratified until the death of Christ. The grace of the covenant was administered to all the saints, even prior to Christ's death, through a promise until the death of Christ. Then it's no longer a promise. It, it's done. And now we look at what God has accomplished through faith. Now why is, why, why is all of that important? Let me summarize it again. Yes, everyone who's ever been saved has been saved by the grace of the covenant of grace. Every saint, every believer, all of the elect in the covenant of grace. The covenant of grace was not officially ratified until Christ died. Why is that important? Because when you read the Bible, and this is where we tend to get confusing with our covenant theology, when you read the Bible, you find out there are other covenants. God comes very often and makes dealings with men. Many people lived and died under the administrations of other covenants, like the Noahic covenant. Everybody after Noah that's lived and died has died under the administration of the Noahic covenant until Christ returns. The Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, the Davidic covenant, these are all covenants that men found themselves under as it was being administered that are not the covenant of grace. If anyone was under the Abrahamic covenant and they were a true saint... Let's say Abraham. He's in the Abrahamic covenant and he's a true saint. Is it by the grace of the Abrahamic covenant or by the grace of the covenant of grace that he's saved? Well, it's the covenant of grace. There's only one saving covenant. If anyone under the Mosaic covenant was a true saint, it was by virtue of the covenant of grace, not by virtue of the Mosaic covenant. Yes, there were true believers under those covenants but they were not saved by those covenants. Those covenants didn't offer salvation in them. There's only one salvific covenant, and it's the covenant of grace ratified in the death of Christ. So then here again we, we re return to what is our supreme theme. As a church, every time we gather, every time we worship, every time we do anything, our our. our, our our preeminent emphasis is Christ crucified. What happened at the cross? That is always our question and answer. What was going on when Christ was crucified? And that's an important question because that's the only place we find salvation. There's salvation in no one else. 
except Christ and in Him crucified. If you're not a Christian, Christ crucified. That's our only hope is trusting in what He has done and entering into that and receiving that grace that God has promised. Let's pray.